listening to The Reese Show. On this show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late-stage capitalism, and we want to transition to something, but we don't really know what's next. So, on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. <laughs> you can leave us a five-star review. You can tell your friends. You can name your first child Reese. Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our route forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. Thanks. Today I chat with Scott Dickers, who was the founder and a longest-running editor-in-chief of The Onion. And it's a great conversation. I mean, we chat a lot about satire as a medium and how satire is changing these days and how we should think about satire and fake news, satire and uh, new kinds of uh, media, like moving from newspapers to online influencers, a bunch of juicy stuff like that. So I hope you enjoy today's episode, Scott. Bye. Hello, listeners. Today I'm excited to chat with Scott Dickers. Scott was a founding editor of The Onion and is the publication's longest-serving editor-in-chief. He co-wrote and edited two brilliant Onion books, Our Dumb Century, which was the New York Times bestseller, and Our Dumb World, which I actually have right next to me and loved it as a kid and still through today. And he also kickstart, uh, helped kickstart The Onion's online presence, including The Onion News Network. Scott, thanks so, so much for being on the show and welcome. Thanks for having me, Reese. Delighted to be here. Yeah, excited to dive in. So I think that a lot of today, I want to kind of understand your perspective on satire and how we should think about satire today. But before doing that, I just kind of want to understand your background a little bit better and understand like what you know got you into writing comedically and, and, and satire and how did you kind of... You know, did you always know you were you were meant to do something like this, or how did you kind of dive deeper into the world of satire? Yeah, I don't remember a time in my youth when I didn't want to do it, so it must go pretty far back. <laughs> so I was always like drawing little cartoons and writing little funny stories and performing for people. I always wanted to be funny. Like I learned early that when I was funny, people liked it, and that was like really good positive reinforcement for me. Mm-hmm. And I definitely went in that direction. And I was surrounded by funny things in the, in the culture. That's, that's what I gravitated toward. Mad Magazine, Gilligan's Island was my favorite show. I Dream of Jeannie. Like, you know, those, those were sort of my haunts as, um, you know, before I uh, was, before I hit puberty. So, and before that, I would say like Sesame Street had a big Mm. impact on me. And, you know, it's a very intelligent, fast moving show for kids. And Dr. Seuss, I was big on Dr. Seuss, which is really good satire for kids. Mm. So I think all that stuff really had an impact on me. It was just so imaginative and so interesting and so entertaining to me. So I don't, I didn't know what satire was, obviously, uh-huh. early. And a lot of those things didn't do satire. Only of the ones I mentioned, Dr. Seuss, certainly, maybe a little bit from Sesame Street. How, how does Dr. It. Seuss do satire, by the way? Tell me more about that. Well, the themes of his books are very satirical. Very, He has very astute subtext. So the subtext of Horton Hears a Who is that every member of society, no matter how marginalized, is worth listening to. Mm-hmm. And that's a really bit, meaningful bit of subtext. And I grew up, like I'm an old man, I grew up in the era of Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. And Martin Luther King was assassinated when I was four years old. And my parents were like semi-educated white liberals who liked 
Martin Luther King mm-hmm. and were mortified when he was assassinated. And then when Robert Kennedy was assassinated later that same year, it just seemed like the world was coming apart. And I, I sensed that and I took comfort in the, the messages of great satirists. And as I grew up, like I, I discovered people like Mark Twain, Leonard Wibberley, other satirists, and certainly like George Orwell mm. um, and Huxley with Brave New World. Um, but so to me, like science fiction is just as satirical as comedy can be. But I was mostly interested in doing comedy. Like that was what I gravitated toward. And I didn't really get into doing too much satirical comedy until The Onion had been around about 10 or 15 years. And that was really just a process of evolution where we would put out The Onion newspaper every week. It was uh, founded in 1989. And we would always just try to make it funnier than the last week. And so we were on this constant drive to always be funnier, always be funnier. And when you do that with comedy, ultimately you're going to arrive at satire because satire is the highest form of humor. It's the funniest way to do humor because you can be as funny as you want, but you're also saying something about mm-hmm. society. You're, you're trying to say something important. And that just makes it a richer experience. It makes it more broadly appealing because then not just everybody likes it, but the really smart people like it and like the tastemakers and the critics. And that's kind of hard to do in comedy to get those people liking you early because typically comedians aren't really recognized for their, their work until long after they're gone. (laughs) Yeah. Or if you're doing poop jokes, you know, it's like poop jokes aren't uh, for the high class tastemakers in society, but satire is. Right. Well, you can do a satirical poop joke, which The Onion has done many. It's all a matter of layering the comedy so that you can appeal to the dumbest people and the smartest people at the same time. The other comic uh, entities that do this well are The Simpsons, which debuted the same year as The Onion, and Pixar is really good at that. They're really good at making movies that a three-year-old can go to and absolutely love, and the parent who has to take them to the theater can also enjoy it because there's so much rich uh, grown up totally, subtext. Totally, totally. I feel there's a, um, I played a lot of Magic, or still play a lot of Magic the Gathering. And it also, the head designer of Magic the Gathering talks about the idea of, uh, he calls this being lenticular, where you have a lenticular mm. lens where from one perspective, it looks funny if you're watching the Pixar film and the kid sees the, you know, a schadenfreude or whatever, the physical humor and laughs and loves it. And then the parent also gets to see the other side of the lens, which is, um, you know, brilliant, funny, you know, like reflections on society. And so uh, something like satire also does that, that kind of lenticular uh, thing where both young and old. I'm also reminded of like Calvin and Hobbes for me uh, did yeah. a really good job of that. Yeah, I would agree. And The Far Side was another good yep. comic from that era that did that. And that's hard to do. Like it's really challenging and really difficult to add all those layers to make your work appeal to that really broad audience. And it's it's so much easier to just pick an age group and say, okay, that's my demographic. I'm going to hit them. And that's kind of what Mad Magazine did. They're like, okay, we're going to hit 13-year-old boys. That's going to be our thing. And we're not really going to try to reach anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how most marketing people think. You know, pick your demographic, go with them. That's your audience. I've never been interested in that. I want to appeal to, I, I want any human to pick up my work and look at it and get something out of it. That's cool. I like that desire, especially there's so much you know, uh, the ability to have layers and the ability for both young and old to get this, get the message is like a very yeah. powerful thing. Um, do you think, you know, this kind of leads me to think, you know, how would you define satire? Like, I mean, you said the funny, but also says something about society. Is that how you would define or what, how do you see satire? Yeah, that's what satire is. It's simply entertainment. It doesn't have to be comedy, but any kind of entertainment that has a subtext that is something that the creator is saying about society or humanity. They're pointing out some fatal flaw or some problem with the way things are that they would like to see fixed. So Mark Twain and Huckleberry Finn, he was saying, hey, we should treat black people like equals. We shouldn't make them a second class 
citizen. Um, that was a that was an important message for people to hear in the 1800s. And George Orwell in Animal Farm was saying, "Hey, be careful who you give power to because power corrupts." You know, but on the surface, you don't see those messages. You just see a funny adventure story about a boy and an escaped slave in Huckleberry Finn. And you see a really funny story about talking animals on a farm in George Orwell's Animal Farm. And so that's how satire works. It's just, uh, um, it's, it's, a, it's a type of humor in, when, when we're talking just about comedy mm -hmm. that uh, has all the trappings of regular comedy like say the Carol Burnett show, or pick pick your poison, um, two and a half men, mm -hmm. friends, whatever. Those shows aren't satirical; they're just funny. People love them; they're really popular. Gilligan's Island, another example. But when when they have something to say about society, and that comes through clearly, like The Simpsons is satirical, because they're saying that Americans are stupid and lazy, and dangerous. In just about every show, like that subtext comes through very clearly. Yeah. And so they're they're finding something wrong with society and they're pointing that out through humor. Yeah, I love it. I think that there's it reminds me a little bit too of uh Key and Peel and how mm -hmm. um Jordan Peel has talked about his mind how he he's become like a, a a you know a scary a horror movie director um but he actually sees it as very similar to the stuff that he did on mad mad or on mad tv or with key and peel where it's like taking these truths in society and kind of either um pushing the awkwardness with them in a funny direction or pushing it the awkwardness with them in a scary direction so you can kind of choose your poison between sci-fi and and humor and all those things is there, yeah. is there something for you, like as you've gone through the years of your life, and I know you've written a couple books on this uh, and, and teach online courses about it, what kinds of learnings do you have for folks in terms of, you know, writing satire or, or, or you know, finding great satire in the world, especially writing, you know, what, what big learnings did you have around writing satire? Yeah, so a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a book. Packed, yeah. <laughs> I've packed a lot of books with that information, but in short, like I'm trying to give guidance to people who want to write humor and I always try to steer them toward satire because it's the most accessible type of humor and it will elevate their work. Like anybody can do satire. It doesn't have to, to be just the domain of, you know, really smart people, really genius people, which I think is the stereotype. So, you know, you take somebody like Jordan Peele, like obviously super amazingly skilled uh, writer and performer and but he's kind of making my point about satire and comedy being so similar they can both be satirical satire um, communicated through science fiction uses like the macabre or the strange or the technologically impossible to convey its subtext whereas comedy uses humor and jokes to convey its subtext, but they're both very similar. They work exactly the same way. And it's funny because I'm similar. Like I write a lot of science fiction books um, under a pen name that I don't tell people about because it's like, I'm, I'm not Jordan Peele, so I'm not going to go out and make a, a science fiction <laughs> or a horror movie. Um, I prefer to do those things kind of like as experiments to see if I can succeed without anyone knowing who I am. But the, the main thing I try to teach people is who, who want to write satire is to write every day and try to write according to certain principles for how comedy is written well. And I spell out all those principles in my first nonfiction book called How to Write Funny, where people can learn how you structure a joke and how, why jokes work and how they work and how you can come up with jokes and then just get them working so that they're constantly producing they're putting it out there in front of people to get feedback. And that's how everybody learns. You know, you write, put it out there, you learn, you write some more, you put it out there some more, rinse and repeat, you know? Yep, 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 yep. Love it. And I love that the, like, something like the onion is the perfect vehicle for that back in the old days where it's just like, yeah, every week, every, it's got to come out every week. And so you're getting better every time. So let's kind of transition. Yeah. Or go, mm -hmm. well, I was going to say, I'm lazy. So <laughs> even though the advice I give is write every day, put stuff out there. 
I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't had this external force that compelled me to do it. And the onion was a perfect accountability tool. It was like, well, you have to fill eight pages of this newspaper every week with funny stuff or you're out of business, (laughs) you know? So couldn't afford to have writer's block. Couldn't afford to say, nah, I just don't feel like this week. And that was a really great lesson. It was a really great way to force myself to keep working and keep growing. Yeah, hundred percent. It's a, I have a newsletter every week and it's just like, it has to come out every Monday, even if I don't want to, you know, it's just, and so that's a, it's a good forcing function. So I want to transition a little bit into like the onion and talking about satires of, you know, these days. So first this onion book, I want to, I want to use our dumb world. Um, this book that you co wrote and co-edited, um, it was the second onion book as an example of, to kind of dive into these, some of these questions on satire. And just a note for listeners, I have the Our Dumb World book you know, next to me right now. Some of the hilarious jokes that I love are just on the front cover. We're not even getting into the book yet. It says, um, in, you know, this free globe inside. <laughs> and it says, now with 30% more Asia. <laughs> and then like down below, it says, you know, fewer clouds on maps and curvier latitude lines. I just think that is all that is so freaking funny because like maps are just maps and it's like what do you want with your maps more Asia baby you know like that's what you want so I just there's it's a juicy amazing book um what what for you as you were and it goes kind of through just like a normal Alice doesn't like says hey this country is like this this country's like this do you remember some of your like favorite parts of the book or maybe something you would change from it or any kind of stories from the book Yeah, I remember how challenging it was because the first original Onion book was Ardham's Century, which was a look back at the 20th century through fake front pages of The Onion, you know, pretending The Onion had been a major newspaper for 100 years. And that was fun and relatively easy because there were such big tentpole moments of the century that you could make jokes about and everybody remembered them. And they were just rich and there were so many characters and, and so much misbehavior. It was just like just rich soil for telling jokes. Then I got this idea, okay, we should do an atlas because it would be a really funny vehicle for comedy. We could make fun of all the countries, et cetera, et cetera. But then get down, get down to actually doing the work and like try to come up with a whole page of jokes about Burkina Faso. <laughs> Like, what does anybody know about that country? What reference points are there? Like, what are, who are the people there? Like, there's nothing. It's like, ultimately, you're making jokes about um, the mountain formations, and it's just agony. So I do remember that being really hard. And we had an incredible staff of funny people who paired up. So I had these writing teams who basically took different sections. You know, one team took Africa, one team took Europe, et cetera. And they did amazing work. The whole team like brainstormed ideas and then the individual teams like tried to come up with cohesive takes on each country so that there would be some, you know, point of reference that you could launch off of to make jokes. And it was a, it was a real delight. A lot of those people were new writers, like freshly hired. And they were just, I saw them come into their own on this project and it was really amazing. That was like the funnest most rewarding thing for me was to see those people really like flower as um, as writers, as satirists on this project. It was pretty incredible. Yeah, it uh, and the, the note about like Burkina Faso and stuff. There's some countries that are in the book of like, and and you even you're just like uh, upfront with it where you're just like. I don't know, maybe it's Burkina Faso, maybe some other ones. You just say, like, the, the headline of the country will be like, no one gives a shit about this country or whatever. Right. Right. <laughs> we know nothing about it, you know, and, like, the whole shtick will be about that, which is funny. Um, right. Well, I think Rwanda, uh, Rwanda was um, the land that Time, Newsweek, and USA Today forgot. <laughs> um, so it's like nobody knows anything about it except oh there was a genocide there but nobody cares anymore. Uh huh. Uh huh. That that lets me let's let's use that as a lead into because I think it is the Rwanda page which has for me one of my favorite jokes in the book but also one that maybe is a good lens to view like what is and is not okay with satire. Um, and I think right. the joke is there's this picture of a kid who's you know four years old or whatever kind of uh you know naked African child holding a machete and it says something like. Um, you know, four-year-old searches for his parents, comma, so he can kill them. 
and that's like that's a that's a cut a joke that cuts deep you know um how do you think about the okayness or not okayness of jokes and 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 yeah where with that as an example how do you think about that well i have a i have a formula for that and it comes from having done it for decades there's very much like a best practices for how to tell edgy jokes that work and a lot of it is like who's your audience and like if you're in mixed company, there are certain jokes you don't want to tell because people are going to be offended or whatever. But I mean, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you know, equal opportunity offender. Mm-hmm. The onion is uh, a publication that makes fun of everything. So that means we can make fun of anything. We don't, we don't have to be, we don't have to walk on eggshells about any particular group or anything like that. Like there's another picture on that page of a woman carrying a basket on her head and it's filled with corpses, mm-hmm. you know, so, yeah, the, the, first of all, the, the equation comedy equals tragedy plus time is absolutely, you know, usable and uh, accurate and decent formula for making sure that your jokes are appropriate. Mm. If you don't want to make them appropriate, and let's be honest, who, who likes appropriate humor? Like everybody <laughs> likes their humor to be a little inappropriate. And so if you just take the time out of that equation, you get comedy equals tragedy. And I knew this, like, and all the other writers at The Onion knew this, that everybody who's funny draws on their own personal tragedy to find humor. Humor comes from pain. Like, we all know this. So the world is filled with tragedies. And you can take any of that and you can turn it into a joke. You just have to use the right tools. And again, I go over all those tools in my book, but like the kid with the machete and so forth, that's that's a hyperbole joke. So it's using the humor tool of hyperbole to tell the story of Rwanda, which is a horrible, tragic story. And it's, it's not offensive because it's in the context of uh, the onion. It's in the context of humor. And a lot of that has to do with like branding, you know? Uh, could a, a person at a bus stop tell you that joke and would you be offended? <laughs> probably, you know, you probably would be offended. So the messenger is a big part of it. But, you know, there's another principle of telling edgy humor that is comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And so you always want to be punching up and you want to be lifting up. So if you're making fun of the downtrodden, that's a problem. For edgy humor, you want to, appear as though you're punching down but not actually be punching down so if you look at the subtext of a joke like that rwandan baby with the machete it appears as though the onion is making fun of you know africans who killing themselves or whatever but it's not it just appears to be on the surface if you dig deep you realize the true subtext is oh my god isn't it horrible that this is how these people have to live Mm -hmm. You know, and that's an empathetic type of subtext that has a sense of humanity to it. And when that's your subtext, you can tell a joke about anything. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think that there's, so I'm hearing that, I mean, I love, yeah, the onion, I think that it makes it so much sense that both the messenger and the context uh, are crucial here, where it's like on the bus stop, if you just have a person spouting off random weird satire stuff you're like yo that's a little bit much but then you can read the onion at that same bus stop and be like okay this is coming from a place that's known for this and that does it for lots of different things and people so that all kind of makes sense to me um yeah or use it in a different context imagine will ferrell is at the bus stop and he's talking to you everything he says you're gonna laugh Uh, yeah Because he's Will Ferrell. (laughs) but if some crazy person that you've never seen before Mm -hmm. who's smelly is saying the exact same thing you're going to be creeped out and you're going to, want to get the hell out of there mm-hmm. yeah that's so yeah context is everything in comedy yeah that makes sense and i think that there's yeah i think i mostly yeah i, I definitely i mean well one, one thing that i actually want to dive in there just to understand your view on comedy here is you know the reason you talked about how pain is where comedy comes from and yeah and often yeah often yeah yeah, yeah often um how like, why is that? And how does, why, why are we laughing at pain? And this is kind of like a, a more meta question about like how com what is comedy generally? So d- dive into that for a yeah. second. 
Yeah, no, it's just a, it's a coping mechanism. That's all it really is. And I'm pretty sure that's why it developed in humans, because pain is hard and, tr and tragedy and hardship is really hard. We need something to, we need a release valve. We need a way to calm ourselves and a salve. You know, what better than being able to laugh about it? Because laughing is is something that like enhances the bond between people. When people laugh together, they feel bonded. And that's a healing thing. You know, I'm sure you've experienced this at a time of tragedy, maybe at a funeral or when something really terrible has happened. Sometimes like a joke in that moment just feels so amazing. Uh -huh. Um, because you need it. It's like a release, you know? And at some point we realized that the onion was kind of like had permission to be that for the nation. Like we could tell the jokes so that people could laugh at how horrible everything was. Uh -huh. That's interesting. Yeah. It reminds me of my, my mom died in last year in May and my brother and I were joking about her and how it was, you know, we were things that we would want to do like eating candy or whatever. We'd say, Oh, well, our mom would want us to do it. You know, like this is our mom. It's right. like, and so things like it was, and so it's this ability to joke about that or to, you know, pretend we would pretend to be her, like her dead self, like those things were, were funny. And so they were very helpful there. I think there also shows a sense of understanding, like the only way it's just kind of like, the whole part of the, especially within satire and in the subtext there, it's like you have to be able to understand the thing really well in order to make fun of it. Like if you say, mm -hmm. yeah, so, so I think that that's another crucial part of, of, of humor is kind of signaling understanding to folks. Do you think, yeah, I, I would agree. Do you think that there's a, um, so thinking about, you know, the role that the onion played and like, and kind of transitioning now into like today's society almost and, and satire, like, our society as it is, and we were chatting, you and I, before the show about, you know, uh, me being excited for 2021, but you were like, it's been a crazy year thus far. You know, how should we think about as society kind of ramps up its craziness or whatever? It's like, you know, jokes about climate change or jokes about, like, how should we think about making fun of that? Like, how, do we, how can we make fun of reality if it is so crazy or scary? Well, we have to. Like, I think it's really important to do that. And for people who are really in the know and follow the news and realize just how dire the climate change situation is and how it's essentially too late to, to fix anything or change anything, mm -hmm. we're going to need some sort of miracle. We need humor. Like it's um, one person, uh, Guy McPherson, who's an um, environmental scientist, he says that humor, or rather gallows humor, is the sixth stage of grief. So after acceptance comes gallows humor because it's like, all right, you know, everything's, uh, everything's screwed. It's uh, all you can do is laugh at it at this point. And so how, you know, that's how you have to get by. Like without that, you'd just be depressed, you know, and that for a lot of people, especially writers at the onion. And I guess I'd put myself in this category without humor, we'd be depressed people. We would just be sad. Humor is like what saved us or what makes us functional. So we use it to channel all the stimuli that we're getting in the world. We kind of have to filter it through humor in order to make it acceptable. Yeah, that makes sense. And that kind of, it's like a classic comedian, like all comedians are actually really depressed people. And this is how they, you know, express it to the world. Yeah, there's this uh, old saying, I don't know if it's a saying, sort of, um, an old stereotype of comedy writers in Hollywood. Like don't invite a comedy writer to a party <laughs> because they'll just bring the energy way down. They'll just sit in the corner and complain. That's funny. That's funny. Do you think, I mean, thinking more about like today's society here, is there thinking about, I mean, another interesting aspect here is the idea of, you know, fake news. And this is like a classic thing where back in the day, you know, the onion was writing articles that were satire and then some people would pick them up and be like, this is truth or whatever. And it's like, Oh God, you, you're wrong. Um, but now, I mean, there's an example here where there's this new, I'm not sure if you could call it right leaning onion style satire news magazine or something. It's called the Babylon Bee. Um, and they were in October, they, they do satire, but kind of more from a right leaning ish perspective. And in October of uh, last year, Trump retweeted a Babylon B thing about 
Yeah. Uh, you know, Twitter, the Babylon beat an article about Twitter shutting down in order to like save Biden from a blah, blah, blah. And then like Facebook decided to like, you know, uh, flag it as misinformation from the Babylon B or whatever. And so it's a weird kind of in an in a event. I'll do the quote here. This event prompted the New York Times to question whether the Babylon B traffics in mis- misinformation under the guise of comedy. <coughs> so how do you think huh. about, you know, misinformation and fake news and how that relates to satire here? Yeah, so the Babylon Bee has been doing good work, and, and I actually interviewed the editor on my podcast. It hasn't aired yet, but Great. Um, I reached out to him after that incident where Trump retweeted them. But yeah, so they're you know obviously following in the onions mold, and part of me is like, I feel at fault because of the onion because for how fake news has become a vehicle for legitimate propaganda that's really doing harm where people put out misleading news and then they can label it satire when really they just don't even understand what satire is. They think making up news is satire, which is not what it is. And, but then part of me feels totally blameless in the whole affair because I feel like really it's just a failure of the American educational system that people in America, especially other countries, not don't have this problem as much. They don't really have any criteria by which to judge whether things are true or not. They're just out there flailing. Like you see it now, like there's so many people who believe that Trump won the election. They believe in all these insane conspiracy theories and they, they have no basis for that. But a lot of people are, validating them and saying, well, a lot of people feel very strongly that this election was stolen. And it's like, well, hey, the facts don't care about your feelings. Like there's been no evidence and there have been 60 court cases in which this has not been proven, but they don't care. And so when you have a significant part of the population that literally cannot tell the difference between fantasy and reality, you're going to have this problem. You're going to have obvious propagandists just cleaning up because those are like easy marks those are gullible people and you can make them do anything and trump has really capitalized on that like those the most gullible people are his people and it's really sad it's really sad and i don't i can't take any responsibility for that i do think if we had better education in this country we wouldn't be having this problem to the extent that we are yeah yeah i agree with that i think that there's and you could you could say it as a general truth not just about satire but about as you're saying with everything determining truth from reality you know uh media literacy the ability to like look at a media source and like dive deeper into it and to check your feelings versus your you know rational mind or whatever yeah you can see people like i love watching interviews with people at trump rallies it's one of my favorite things yeah. to do and i love when they'll ask somebody um something and the person will tell them some piece of information that they believe and they'll say well where did you hear that said, i saw it on the internet it's like, well, no, wait a minute, back up. What was the source? Like, no, it's on the internet. I saw it on the internet. They have no concept of verifying a source or like making sure that it's a reputable source, you know, or fact checking. They have no sense of that. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. I mean, and I agree. Those, uh, have you seen All Gas, No Breaks, that YouTube channel? I don't know that. Okay, I'll send it over to you afterwards. It's a funny one where he, <laughs> the guy just goes to both Trump rallies, but also to um, flat earther events and oh, that's all cool. kinds of weird stuff like that. And just interviews folks and he's and he has a deadpan, you know, uh, delivery and it's, it's quite good. So I think that there's a, that's interesting. I mean, I wonder if, I guess like this one thing you could say is like society's uh, education and media literacy will be, will know it's good when, uh, all of when everybody is aware of onion style satire as satire when it comes out um, instead of being confused by it and then like you know being told that these it just it seems like we're in a bad place when satire is uh, is labeled as misinformation. Oh yeah, terrible place. I feel like in in a functional society we should be able to have an occasional like news parody type story maybe fool a tiny handful of people who should know better. But then as soon as they find out the source, they realize they've been punked and they say, ah, you got me. I'm an idiot. Um, that's how it used to go. Like now it's just like, 
No, they believe it and they will never stop believing it, no matter what evidence to the contrary <laughs> they encounter. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah, yeah, it's bad. I mean, it's something that, I mean, again, back to the, the yes, yeah, so, I mean, there's a, another like kind of thrust here, which is if we think about, I mean, so, so folks like the Colbert Report and the Daily Show with Jon Stewart, they had, you know, in the late 2000s and the 2000s, early 2010s, there was this um, shtick that they had, which was really kind of, it was just making fun of, you know, Republicans was kind of the and conservatives was the vibe. And it was, you know, making fun. And, and Colbert was even the best of it because he was pretending to be, he'd have these folks come onto a show and they thought that it, it was like, it was tough to tell whether they knew it was a real show or whatever. And he was pretending yeah. to be into their, the kind of stuff that they were into, but actually was not. And I wonder, and it, like, is that actually detrimental to kind of treat them as other almost dehumanize them, constantly be making fun of them without letting them know that you're making fun of them. What are your thoughts on kind of that, that sphere? Yeah, I thought a lot about that when that show was, was on the air. I mean, the tragedy is that they're such a big part of the population. Like in a, in a healthy society, they should be a small percentage of the population. Like people who are fascists and support Nazis or who don't believe in facts. Like that should be, 10% of the population, in which case, go make fun of them, like have a whole show where you make fun of them. Great. They should be marginalized. They should be called out. But when it's nearly half, like that's a concern, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think it's, yeah. And I wonder if there's something about, hmm, and this is kind of like, and everybody just plays different roles, but like, there's the satire side, which is in one way kind of deeply empathetic because you really do kind of understand and get their perspective and then are making fun of it. And then there's another version of reality, which is like empathizing with and understand, like, because a lot of these folks, like their information ecosystems are just completely broken and they're in the sad state of affairs where they've been, you know, whether it's listening to Fox News and then into, you know, um, OANN and et cetera. And they're just like in these awful, sad worlds that they were just kind of like born into or whatever. And I think that there's, I don't know, I just, I wish that there was something about the satire publications that while they were doing satire, they had like a side hustle that was also trying to make it the case that the things that they were satirizing weren't going to be true in five or 10 years. Yeah, I mean, that's putting a lot of responsibility on the shoulders of the satirists. Like our job is to entertain and to try to communicate our subtext. And so- with Stephen Colbert on his show, the subtext was, hey, we should be fact-based. And I think it was also a really progressive subtext, which was, hey, the real enemies are the corporations, you know, unchecked government and corporate power, the rich, you know, who are just propagandizing us into oblivion. Um, the enemy is not immigrants, uh, women, um, transgender people like that, that was a big part of his subtext. And so all you can do as a satirist is try to make that point and keep making that point. And I guess I sort of believe in Martin Luther King's idea that the, uh, the arc of history bends toward justice yeah. and more inclusion over time, because I feel like in just the last week, you know, we're talking like right after the, the raid on the Capitol building. I feel like a lot of people are starting to come to their senses and realizing just how dangerously far the pendulum has swung. And some of that subtext that satirists have been feeding us for decades is, is finally bearing fruit where it's like, Oh yeah, maybe we shouldn't have voted for a fascist. Maybe we shouldn't have put a, a person with clear fascist leanings in office. Maybe that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. And, but the problem is we learned that lesson after the Bush years where, you know, we, we were lied into a war and we tortured people and uh, his approval rating, Bush's approval rating was down to like 20% when he left office. Everybody was like, Oh my God, what a big mistake. And of course, we make the exact same mistake eight years later. And I'm no fan of Obama. I feel like Obama and Biden, like those establishment Democratic politicians, are really just sort of holding the line. They're not really improving anything. But the 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 way the pendulum has swung so far to the to the right, 
is something that satirists have been warning against for a long time. And so I've got to believe that at some point that pendulum is going to swing back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like what you said there too about a, yeah, everybody has their different roles and the role of satirists shouldn't also be to, um, you know, like empathize with and create programs. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. But having said that, I will say that what John Oliver is doing on his show is really interesting where he uh, compels people to take action Mm -hmm. and like call the FCC and, stuff like that. Like, I think that's wonderful where he's turning people into activists. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting elevation of what satire can do. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think that there's, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder, I mean, if you think about these days, like the other kind of, you know, future of satire question here is, I mean, you know, for you all, when you started, you were, you know, the onion was a newspaper publication and then it turned into obviously um, it turned into, you know, the onion.com and also click hole, you know, the amazing, buzzfeed style satire what do you see as do you see any kind of like futures of of satire in terms of how technology might change satire i don't know about technology like there's there's always going to be different mediums of humor and satire like the internet was a a new medium that that revolutionized the the um the broad scope of the delivery like and it democratized entertainment to a great extent now you don't need all these gatekeepers you can self-publish and get your work out in front of people without any kind of distribution company publisher you know movie studio that's wonderful like i think that's fantastic so that i don't see like the the basic message of satire i don't think is going to change it's always going to be people saying hey life could be better society could be better let's work to make it better and they're going to be saying that through humor. The, the technology, the mediums that, that they, or the media that they communicate through, I don't think that's as important or, or as big of a deal. But where I think it's going to go, where I think it's already going, is it's moving away from news parody, where it was seeded pretty powerfully for about 20 years because of The Onion and The Daily Show and The Colbert Show. And... Now there's so many spinoffs and I feel like people, they get that. But what works in comedy is the new and the, the thing that breaks the mold. So there was a, a website recently, it, it had to be shut down because Tumblr decided they, they weren't going to have swearing and uh, X-rated material anymore. But Liartown USA was a wonderful, wonderful satirical blog that was so funny. Thankfully, he put out a book um, called um, Flyer Town USA, the first four years, that reproduced all of the work from his website. And it had nothing to do with fake news, but it was a really powerful uh, piece of work, powerful piece of satirical humor that takes you by surprise because it comes at you from a direction you don't expect. And that's probably what's going to happen in the future. So... That was really exciting to me. Like somebody like Connor O'Malley is really exciting to me. I don't know if you know who he is. No, yeah. Tell me a little bit before. Yeah, what what does Connor O'Malley do? Connor O'Malley uh, was a guy just going through the improv schools in Chicago and making little short videos. And he was doing these online stunts where he would review products under a fake name, and all the stuff he did was just really funny and really clever. And now he's, he's gotten a pretty big following and a big platform, and he got hired to write for the Seth Meyers show. But he makes these videos where he pretends he's a Trump supporter. For a while, he was a Trump supporter. Then he bailed on Trump, and he became a Howard Schultz supporter. <laughs> and he's insane. Like, he, his videos are insane, and they're worth checking out. And again, it sort of takes you by surprise, like, just how unhinged he seems is really refreshing and interesting and funny. And it's a, it's counter-programming to The Onion, which is told through this very straight AP-style parody. Mm-hmm. So The Onion would never be unhinged. So he's kind of taking in a different direction. Yeah, I love that. I think, 
I mean, a lot of what you said there is pretty juicy. I think, A, there's the idea of the medium and how, as you're saying, like the medium does change things to some extent, but like it doesn't, um, a, a bigger part of them on the opposite side of the medium is kind of like what kind of subtext are people talking about? And also how are they, what are they parodying? And so you're saying that, yeah, we used to be parodying newspapers, you know, and now something like Clickhole parodies BuzzFeed and someone like exactly. Conor O'Malley parodies the modern new day of influencers and you can just see random uh, YouTubers or Trump supporters or whatever face-to-face through the internet. And so he's kind of parodying one of them. What does Liartown USA do, by the way? Like, what are they parodying? He parodies the strangest things. He parodies the the screen on Netflix that um, shows up before you hit play. Um, he parodies old record albums, old um, pulp comic books, um, signs at malls. Like he uses those as vehicles for his humor and they're just fantastic. Um, totally worth checking out his work. Cool. But yeah, the message of satire is, is going to be unchanged no matter what the, the medium is like, Conor O'Malley did a TV pilot, unfortunately didn't get bought, but he was doing like uh, a conspiracy theorist in his basement who got his own TV show. So it was like an Alex Jones, a low rent Alex Jones, um, where his mom is upstairs sort of thing. And really funny. I think, I believe it's all online. You can check it out. But so, you know, there's always going to be new shows and new personalities to to parody mm-hmm. and parody obviously is a great medium for satire the onions be parody on a newspaper and website for a long time to great effect yeah. and i'm a huge fan of it yeah it doesn't have to be satire you like you can do a parody without doing satire mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense i think there's a funny the, what it makes me think of too and i just maybe want to get your your thoughts on this is there's a, from a content perspective the other thing that you can make fun of these days is like or a new thing that's possible to make fun of a newish thing is just like the tech world in general and i'm reminded of whether it's silicon valley or if we go to the kind of the sci-fi version of satire something like black mirror or if we go to you know some of y'all's work with the onion back in the day the like hp cloud episode um, where you're pretending to like talk about app and like you know these new tech things i feel like That's another, especially for me, thinking about in my own work is very kind of tech facing. And so thinking about, um, or do you have any thoughts on like the funny things that that folks could make fun of in the tech world? I mean, I'm not really big on the the tech world Mm -hmm. specifically. Like, I think it's not as universal as satirizing things about human beings Mm -hmm. because so many people aren't in the tech world. I feel like it's really small. I mean, obviously it's fun to make fun of once in a while. Mm -hmm. And we found on the Onion web videos that whenever we did a tech-based story or a story about Apple or something like that, it would just go viral so much faster and bigger <laughs> because everybody on the internet was interested in that stuff. It was pretty funny. That is funny. But yeah, there's a, just connecting to humans themselves is the easier thing. So you kind of- It's more universal. Like It's more lasting, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think- and as we get to this kind of wrap up mode here, I think you kind of talked about some of the things you're like some of your favorite modern satires, the Liar Town USA, Connor, Connor O'Malley. Are there is there anything else that you're like watching or listening to these days and excited about? I mean, those are it in terms of satire. I'm always keeping my eyes open. I also enjoy humor that's not satirical. Mm-hmm. Like I think bad lip reading is really funny, uh-huh. um, and I love the democratization of humor that you have online now where anybody can do something funny and put it out there and it could rise to the top that day. Like you never know. It doesn't, it doesn't always come from a professional source, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's really exciting that kind of the whole world is workshopping jokes every day. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you think as a final uh, section here, there's uh, this, we will play this game underrated and overrated where I'll just kind of say two big categories here and you'll just say why, uh, you know, kind of quickly like, Hey, whether it's overrated or underrated and give me a reason uh-huh. why. Uh, and the first one is puns. Do you think puns are overrated or underrated? I think they're underrated. I think puns can be really funny if used properly and used well. And I obviously go over how to use them in my book. Too much to go into here, way too much in the weeds. But they can be delightful. I don't know if you've noticed, but they're really popular nowadays 
on late night TV monologues, like Jimmy Kimmel, like every other line will be a pun. Huh. And it, it's pretty powerful. Uh, it can be really funny. That's interesting. Okay, so underrated. Got it. Uh, Seinfeld. Do you think Seinfeld is overrated or underrated? I think it's rated exactly the way it should be rated. It's considered one of the best TV sitcoms ever, which I think it is. It's an incredibly well-written, funny show that, and everyone recognizes it as such. So I think it's in, in it's right where it should be. Okay. Nice. I'll, I'll, usually I won't, I wouldn't allow that answer, but I will allow it this time. <laughs> um, beautiful. Well, this has been fun. I mean, it's been, it's been cool for me to learn kind of how you think about satire generally and how, you know, the relationship between satire and our current moment and how it's just still an important thing for us to be doing. So that's great. I guess for our listeners, um, are there, where can they find you online or what, what you know, any call to actions for our, for our folks? Yeah. I mean, if anybody wants to learn how to write comedy, I have a website called how to write funny.com. I've got a bunch of free eBooks there on how to get started writing humor. <clears throat> you know, if somebody doesn't want to dive in and, and buy my book, I have those free books there, free articles, my podcast, interviews people in the comedy business from all aspects of it talk about how it's done and i'm on twitter and facebook and instagram and all that stuff scott dickers i think even if you misspell my name i show up (laughs) so that works out well for me and i'm writing i mentioned i'm writing science fiction novels under a pen name i just started writing novels under my own name which i'm really excited about um put out my first novel last year and uh, going to be writing more this year. And those are um, self-published cool. on Amazon. Cool. Yeah. That's very exciting. I think, um, yeah, and if nothing else, be excited. Definitely listeners, check out the upcoming episode on Scott's podcast with the Babylon Bee guy because it's a really, yeah, just Babylon Bee is a really cool, uh, interesting satir- satirist publication. So that, that one sounds juicy and fun. Um, so thanks. Again. Yeah, we had a good conversation. Yeah, great. Uh, thanks again for coming on today, Scott, and goodbye, everybody. My pleasure. episode. I want to focus most of my reflection on the idea of subtext and the relationship relationship between the text and the subtext is obviously very connected to lots of the ideas in Root around coherent pluralism and the general concepts of map and territory and language and our ability to use symbols for the reality underneath. And, you know, it's connected to the ability to see a situation and to understand all the signaling that's happening in the situation in addition to the actual content, you know, or like the Tyler Cowen Straussian reading of things. And I think that, I mean, a couple things to highlight here. First is seeing people's relationship between reality and the fake reality it's quite interesting. I think Key and Peele is such a great example of this because in their episodes, or in their little uh, shorts on YouTube, you can see, like, a four-minute episode will take something that's real, like, you know, the Dueling Hats episode, or, you know, the easier one is the, the Substitute Teacher episode, where there's someone who has a... It's like white teachers trying to pronounce black kids' names is funny, and so they, they flip and they say, oh, what about a black teacher trying to pronounce white kids' names, and it starts with something, you know, more simple, like D-nice, and then later it turns into A-A-Ron, and instead of Aaron. And the idea here is that they're kind of taking a close-to-truth funniness and then pushing it to the extreme. And they do this all the time in their episodes, where they take, you know, the Dueling Hats episode, they start by saying, you know, you know, folks like to have cool hats and like to up-signal each other on what their cool swag wear, and it starts with that, and then it just keeps on going until they get better and better hats until they're super, super ridiculous. So it takes these things that are, are kind of already ridiculous in life and then pushes that truth of dueling hats to the extreme or the truth of mispronouncing names to the extreme or the truth of funny, you know, East-West Bowl uh, sports teams' names to the extreme. So I think that 
Keen Peel does a good example of that. And then Jordan Peel, the uh, one of the two parts of Keen Peel, his horror movies like Get Out are another example of this. They're taking the true reality, which is a uh, you know, a black guy going to a white girl's white woman's family and feeling awkward there when everybody says, Oh man, we just love Obama, you know, I voted for Obama in two thousand eight. That truth, and then continuing to push it to the extreme, and you get uncomfortable as you continue to push it, where you're like, is this reality or is this not reality? Are these white people just being white people? Or are they being like, are they going to kill him? You know? And so being, it's all the same underlying mechanism, which is seeing a truth in reality as it is, and then being able to kind of mess with that truth and say, oh, is what we're doing still real? Is what we're doing still real? And then eventually pushing it far enough we're like oh this is not reality anymore so in a similar so i just want to give that key and peel example and then in a similar sense you can think of all the fake news and satire that exists out there or rather <laughs> that satire was you know the original fake news and that there is satire is much more possible when the distinction of what is reality is more clear and if the news is already fake, or if it's difficult for people to determine what is fake or real, then satire, it's harder for satire to play a role there. Or, obvious, or, or another way to say it is that people then not be able to determine both what is fake from what is real and what is satire from what is non-satire. But they're all kind of playing in a similar space in an interesting way. The other thing that's kind of interesting here is, you know, Scott was talking about the, in making Our Dumb Century versus Our Dumb World, the two Onion books, that the Our Dumb Century book was easier because it there's lots of the underlying content that the subtext can reference was all of history, or a century of history, versus Our Dumb World, where some of the underlying content was like a country they had never heard of. And so this makes me think about our current reality and how, A, as things already are a joke on the internet, you know, the uh, LARPer guy from the, you know, Capitol riots or Capitol insurrection, you know, how, how does one even make fun of that, you know, as the content is changing? How does the subtext or the satire change? And then similarly, how does the, you know, as it gets more intense, as it becomes more climate crisis-y or authoritarian, you know, is it possible? You know, is it okay and possible to make fun of? I'm curious, like whether there was Nazi satire at the time of the Nazis, for example. So, the other thing that this, you know, on the content level, to some extent, this is both content and medium pieces, where you know Scott and I were chatting about how. You know, this move away from news comedy, where The Onion's really, it's a newspaper comedy. Like, the medium of the time was newspapers, AP-style newspapers, and then The Onion made fun of them in that same medium, in that same style. And now, you know, and then Clickhole was an example of BuzzFeed humor. This one now of, you know, this his example of Connor O'Malley is really brilliant, because the current real media is something like YouTubers or, you know, TikTok influencers or whatever. And what you get then is satire of that specific genre. So this is Connor O'Malley pretending to be a at-home YouTuber Trump supporter. Or, you know, there's a bunch of, you know, Twitter accounts which make fun of VCs for their kind of VC-style tweeting. So I find this pretty fascinating as a place to see where things are going next around the kinds of how the medium determines uh, new kinds of, of, of yeah, the influencer types and how then there will be satire of those things. And then I guess the final piece to say here is just like, I don't know how best to think about, and Scott and I chat about this a bit, but I'm not totally satisfied yet. The fact that so much of the satire that I read these days is just making fun of people on the right, uh, the other side, and that it's making fun of them, it's kind of demonizing them or othering them, 
And it's saying truths that are kind of sad, you know, and true and funny. And at the same time, there's kind of a no-humor policy within social justice activism where you can't, like, make fun of wokeness or whatever. It's, it, that, that, it's like a difficult thing to do. I don't know. It doesn't seem like a good, stable state to me. And I'm curious to see, A, is it possible for us? I mean, satire is good. It shows the underlying truth. It shows the truth of the, some of the craziness that's happening in politics and with the other side and the Republican Party or whatever. And I just, I guess I hope that those truths are used as a way to make that stuff better. And also that we start to make fun of people on the left more. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's uh, those are some thoughts here. But yeah, really pretty curious stuff here, and especially just love hearing about how a lot of the ideas that exist within kind of the intellectual worlds that I'm in of language mapping onto reality and maps and territories, how that is pretty similar to the satire reality of the text and the subtext. So thanks for listening. Goodbye.